Hello, you are listening to the DD Geopolitics Podcast, and it is indeed the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I'm just me, joined by Chebs herself, our new host Lydia from Russia, and we have quite a bit to discuss because it has been a while, as I'm sure you've all noticed. And what a set of events have happened, and that are going on right now. France is on fire again. What is up with that? Can Macron actually do anything besides be a jerk? Affirmative action in the United States has been overturned. What does it mean? What the hell happened with the Wagner mutiny? Why did the super-duper turbo patriots actually turn out to be traitors after they'd complained for so long all the time about 1917, they went and did an infamous version of 1917? What is going on right now at the moment with Hungary, Sweden's NATO memberships, Quran burnings, and perhaps Nordic sense of entitlement? Or just simply a cult of free speech in the West that actually doesn't have too much to do with free speech? And finally, a human interest story. Hafez al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad's son, and named for his grandfather, has graduated from Moscow State University. We will be talking about what a functional family looks like and what a bright young man looks like, as opposed to whatever it is that Hunter Biden is. I'm, I'm not sure. And Jared Kushner, I'm not sure anymore. Welcome. What a fantastic introduction. <laughs> that was so great. Um, I, we've missed you guys. Uh, I don't know if you've missed us as much as we've missed you, but we've missed you guys. And we are really happy to bring our uh, friends Lydia on board to give us an, a yet another uh perspective from a different location in the world so let's get started jm on france uh, well lydia why don't you say hi first to the to your new fans i guess your new listeners hi everyone i'm lydia just lydia um yes okay JM, let's get to the news yeah jm take us to france because that's like your that's, that's like your wheelhouse uh, oui, on peut parler français un peu ici, si vous voulez, but the, the program's language is English, not French, so I won't be lecturing you in French, même si vous le voulez, on ne peut pas le faire, c'est trop compliqué. A bit like the situation in France right now. Okay, so what happened? Um, at a traffic stop a few four days ago, a French policeman pulled over a speeding underage motorist and pulled his service pistol on him and told him to stay right where he was and not to move or he would get a bullet in the head. It appears as though the kid panicked and tried to speed drive away, and so the officer shot him. The officer was probably thinking, in addition to the fact that he could get away with it, that under French law, when there is a lawful command to stop and the actions of the person being told to stop could put the physical integrity of the officer or other bystanders at risk, that the use of force, including lethal force, is authorized. And driving away in a speeding car when you're standing right there, that there is an argument for that, but it set off clearly these 
riots which have now been going on for four days of people protesting against police brutality in France, which is often an issue that has been raised for now about 30 years. But one does have to question if this is entirely about this one incident and police brutality. Okay, why do I say that? Case in point. Um, the people where they are rioting, it has often been portrayed as though this is rampaging all over France, but actually it's people mostly rioting in their own neighborhoods, trashing their own neighborhoods. So I've seen some infamous right-wing commentary about how um, you know, non-white French are targeting white French, but actually given that these violence is contained within their neighborhoods and um, much like, sadly, the United States, um, ethnic groups are not so much uh, mixed as they are next to each other often in France. This has tended to just be people trashing their own neighborhoods and battling with the police. So it's not a good situation, though, because this has been going on for four nights. It has not yet seemed to have peaked. As a matter of fact, over the last few nights, we've seen evidence that there were attempts unsuccessful to break into a jail in Paris. We have seen evidence of uh, people in the crowds using fireworks or at least things with gunpowder towards the police. At least one other person has been reported confirmed killed as a result of the rioting in France, and over 2,400 people have been arrested by the police so far, and one of the police unions has written a letter to President Macron to say this is absolutely unsustainable. We can't keep doing this. But what also makes this interesting is that when this started, even as the riots were starting – starting – because I was thinking of partying because of how <laughs> wild things are getting out there. It's like the worst street rave imaginable, especially for anybody who's ever had to listen to a street rave while you're trying to get to sleep. Anywho, Macron was out partying with Elton John while riots were going on. Rather than addressing the nation to try and calm the situation and ensure that there would be an investigation that he himself was taking a personal interest in this, that they would get to the bottom of this, uh, justice would be done, and that the use of force in that instance was excessive. He instead just kind of ignored it, instead choosing to hobnob with whoever. And only recently has he chaired a meeting of the Security Council. Now, one would conclude, give, looking at how many times there have been riots while Macron has been president, and I do mean major riots, that he's just not very good at this. There were the Gilets Jaunes protests in 2018 and 2019. In 2020 and 2021, there were major protests and riots about COVID, lockdown, police brutality again. Last year, there were also uh, riots, and earlier this year, there were riots which I think, by the way, probably goes to why there are such violent riots now and why police brutality, rather than it just being, oh, well, you know, the cops are sometimes going to be hard and, you know, we really don't like this, but then it dies down a bit after some protests, is because earlier this year, Macron forced through by presidential decree bypassing the National Assembly a law which raised the retirement age and if it cut some uh, old age pensions, uh, he passed it by decree 
even though the there was no majority for it in the National Assembly, and the Constitutional Court ruled that the president passing a major piece of legislation that also has to do with budget matters, which are very much within the purview of the legislature, was constitutional. And part of the reason this appears to have happened is that there was tremendous pressure from the European Union Commission to do this for reasons that we can get into another time, because I think we would be here all day if we were just talking about this. But this was even though that a majority of the parliament, which is dominated in large part by Macron's own party, opposed the measure. So it was kind of a suspension of politics and rule by presidential decree. So I think people from that, especially because people take their social guarantees in France very, very seriously, they expect the state to provide for them. They're not just and they're not just passive about it. Part of the the French take the idea of a social contract very, very seriously, and they it was very upsetting to people that this was just passed by decree, that a president could just rule on this by decree. And as we often touch on the subject of Russia here, I think it is worth noting that in 2005, President Putin tried to do this, and he was defeated in the Duma. And also there were street protests back then saying no to this. And um, many members of his own party, including the then mayor of Moscow, Yuri Lushkov, turned on him over this. In 2018, under the recommendation of Alexei Kudrin, a good friend of President Putin and longtime economy minister from 2000 to 2011, he effectively forced through a cut in old age pensions and raising the retirement age, but this was also after significant street protests and only after United Russia in the Duma itself watered down the bill. It didn't go through in its original form, so the cuts were not as deep. So Mr. Putin, the arch dictator, mean, mean, nasty President Putin, didn't dare try to pass something like this by decree and didn't overrule parliament. Whereas Macron, the leader of a free country in the garden, as Joseph Borrell did, I would argue that this is part of the reason why the riots are so violent, because police violence is always an, exa an example, even when it's justified, of executive power and arbitrariness of the state over the individual that can't help but make one feel small. But when that is compounded with the fact that major things which impact how you're going to live when you're old um, and probably not in the best of health and suddenly something is being taken away from you and it's being done by decree and your own legislature, which you don't like much anyway, is just being overruled, I think that contributes to a sense of rage and helplessness. But that's my two cents. I think that's a fair assessment. I just have like a couple, I keep on like calling it the jo Francis George Floyd summer. And that's not like a joke or a play on George Floyd. It's like I know you mentioned police brutality being a point of contention for the last 30 years. Um, but I think that this, this is also, if it's been a problem for the last 30 years, and we're now seeing these humongous responses to it. Well, humongous in an isolated sense, but humongous responses to it. Um, as I lose my, completely lose my train of thought. Oh, the it's just the catalyst really, isn't it? It's just a catalyst for the powder keg, honestly. It's just the dissatisfaction. It's kind of like, is it, it, do you think that it's a lot of this carryover from the outrage from the pension uh, protests? Or we're kind of still have all of this sorts of pent up anger 
or um, I've seen this protest take on much more of a political tone than um, the pension protests. Obviously, these these protests are getting a lot more uh, attention from the international community in terms of just international commenters saying things, uh, you know, like, well, this is kind of like a long time coming, not in like a threatening sense, but that, you know, this is this was inevitable. This was going to happen sort of thing. I think there's fairness to that, but one always has to remember that France in the news is a bit like Russia in the news, which is that people are constantly trying to tear it down. And so the reason I say this is that I remember that when there were in it was either 2017 or 2018 protests also against police brutality that got, got quite uh, serious, but not as serious as this, is that the U.S. State Department put out a report talking about its concern about police brutality in France and in prisons, where if you're an American, French police are like, I wish U.S. police were like that, because in terms of the, like, there are indescribably fewer police shootings in France than there are in the United States. Cops make far less resort to their weapons. Uh, I would argue, at least from the basis of personal experience, that French police, including when they're not in action, riot police are actually a lot more approachable than U.S. police, even on a good day. You know, you need to be respect. You need to be respectful, but as long as you're not acting shifty, police are approachable. Uh, as I said, even including people like the riot police. So the CRS which stands for uh, Compagnie de Sécurité Républicaine. And also, the French police are not really a tool, I would argue, of white uh, domination. It might be, you could argue, more class-based. But if ever you're in France and you look at French police, you will see lots and lots of Arab and Black cops. And like, for example, in one of the cases of the last set of riots in 2017-2018 about police brutality, there is a pretty famous clip, at least on the French internet, of some uh, hooded white guy trying to hit a uh, French riot, black French riot cop with a whip, and the French riot cop is just batting away each attempt and then, you know, giving this guy the look of, what now? Come at me, bro. And the guy eventually runs away. So French cops are look like France. Uh, the French also have, have ambiguous feelings about their police. Like, on the one hand, they may not like the brutality, but they also, French cops have this uh, reputation of getting the job done. They will get their man, and they won't let anybody stop them. And when you've been the victim of a crime, you quite want the police to be like that. So there are mixed feelings about the police. I think this is just a lot more... I think in addition to, obviously, there's an element of uh, resentment here about who primarily is on the receiving end of police violence, but also just a sense of nothing is ever changed or, ad or addressed anymore in France, and especially this is accelerated since 2012. But in terms of, you know, France constantly being a powder keg where, you know, black French people and white French people and Arab French people do not mix, do not get along, do not hang out in the same places. I, I've, I've 
visited France extensively, as you know. I've also lived in France. I would just say that you should read those things with a great deal of skepticism. It's present, but I don't see it as much as people say. I think people just kind of like tearing France down because nobody likes the French because um, they get jealous of the French. Why do you think people are jealous of the French? Wow. <laughs> Explain yourself, please. If you've ever, if you've ever, if you've ever been to France or lived in France, it's lovely. It's, uh, you know, like ah, uh, it's like, and I loved it. I did love France. I really, really did. And I went to Marseille. <laughs> Excuse me. I went to Marseille, and I absolutely loved France. But you're so funny because you're like. Just so our listeners know, it's kind of like a running joke that um, JM is very, very pro-France. So it's always very interesting to me to hear from JM because um, on the French perspective, because he's very, very, very much supportive of France. So the notion that people are jealous of France is, is very interesting to me. Do you mean like in a European perspective? Because I think that in the United States, there's a general... I don't know about it so much anymore, but there was always a general disdain for the French, like not a hatred, just like a general like meh with the well, French. I, I think that the disdain actually comes from jealousy because France is a very rich country, but it also is one with very good labor protections. So the French take their vacation time, the idea that you can't force me to work um, overtime, even though obviously French people actually do tend to do things like work overtime or actually usually work longer than 35 hours a week. The French are not, contrary to stereotypes, people who will, uh, you know, work seven hours a day exactly and then clock off. But they do take, you know, not being run over, roughshod by the boss very seriously. And people don't like that. They like nice, obedient workers. Also, the French typically are very confident in a lot of that the way they do things is quite good and that it works quite well, even if they actually engage in sort of quasi-Russian doomerism of, we're constantly in decline as we live in a very clean, safe country with excellent uh, food, excellent social services and healthcare and jobs. I feel and attacked. looking after families. We are doomed. <laughs> doomed. I feel attacked personally. I did not come here to be attacked like this. <laughs> Well, I don't, I mean, I think it's great. I think that it's excellent that France and the French have labor protections. And it's so funny because I was literally just watching a movie and we can get into all this on another episode because this is a, a rabbit hole, but I was literally just watching a movie. I think it was called Baby Ruby or something like that. And the girl has, is she's French and she has a baby in America and she's like exhausted and she's going through this like horrible episode of postpartum and then she goes out with like a bunch of American moms for like mom drinks or whatever and the one American mom is like is it true that like France takes care of like everything after you have a baby and the French mom's just like exhausted and you can see in her face like why the hell did I ever leave France like I have no help <laughs> I had no like I, I'm still going through postpartum she's like I, I she is completely like physically deteriorating she's like yeah in France we have like physical therapy and people that come to the house and it's just like it's such a foreign concept to me and jealousy could be a, a good word for it but in all honesty 
there, I'm sure there are plenty of people that don't even know about the benefits that the French experience from their employers and from their their. Maybe their... it's for the better. Now that I'm learning about this, maybe it's good that they don't know about these things. <laughs> they really do. I can remember another documentary where, like, it was. Uh, forgive me, listeners, but it was a long time ago, and it was Michael Moore sicko. But he he did go and interview Americans in France that were kind of like, "Holy hell! Like, we get vacation here, like." <laughs> get a paid vacation here and like most americans are like oh no i don't get free paid vacation until i've worked somewhere for at least a year like it's just the disparity is so funny and we can watch the french the french uh protest and revolt um almost on a week especially in the summer on a weekly basis and then america we're all just like this sucks this this just keeps getting worse and france is still like we have three weeks a year paid vacation and like maternity social safety nets and we're still like fighting tooth and nail for everything that you know for what we believe in and you know in the united states we're like oh yeah i guess they just took away our abortion rights or something like nobody even knows what's going on and like but but don't don't worry uh, chebu nancy pelosi just sat out a fundraiser saying give me three dollars so i can fight for it what oh my god i get i don't even know how but i'm on nancy pelosi's mailing list and the emails are just i won't even unsubscribe because the emails are just fantastic uh, funny which i think actually is a good segue into affirmative yeah action. now we're Chefs, moving on to the united what? states let's talk about affirmative action now i i will preface this by saying i am a person that has neither benefited nor been disadvantaged by affirmative action so um, I guess the Supreme Court repealed it this week. Uh, it's something that has kind of always loomed in the back of, of minds for a while. And I think it's been kind of brought by the forefront because uh, people are starting to really um, start to really examine these sorts of, of issues, which is why we're seeing all of these Supreme Court cases and kind of why we're seeing this discord. But um, just to give like a brief, because I know we have Lydia here and probably some uh, listeners that are not in the uh, United States or have not heard of affirmative action. Exactly, because I was going to say you you just kind (laughs) of went right in and I'm like, what the hell is that? I mean, I I do know about some some of the things about it, but I would love to learn more. (laughs) So uh, the term is a Russian. So Russian, a Russian gal. Um, so the term affirmative action was introduced by John F. Kennedy back in the early uh, 1960s. And I believe that it was put into like uh, legal language, like into an executive order by Lyndon B. Johnson later on. So we're talking about the 1960s, a huge time of like racial turmoil um, and rightfully so, you know, the MLK years, Martin, uh, Malcolm X, rest in peace, both of them. But um, so a huge time period of where um, the civil rights movement trying to get African-Americans up to, to speed after being obviously being subjected to uh, slavery and segregation and and whatnot and sharecropping, which was another horrible practice, but trying to get them the same opportunities as their peers, as their peers of other of other races. So the 1960s. So. Uh, and Lyndon B. Johnson, I think that the, the, I, the language was something like in the context, context of the allocation of resources or employment, resources in this instance being education, uh, the practice or policy of favoring individuals belonging to groups regarded as disadvantaged or subject to discrimination. That's the definition of affirmative action. So um, 
it was my issue with affirmative action is that not that it exists. I mean, that's that's fine. I mean, it's whatever. But the why, the why that it exists, right? So, so we'll put in place affirmative action to in the '60s and '70s to address the acute and immediate problems that we have had then, right? Which was tangible, visual, visible um, racial discrimination uh, based on color alone that wasn't allowing Black people to excel in the in the career space in the professional space as well as the academic space so that was the problem so the affirmative action was it was utilized as one of the solutions to those problems which is great right but we're still talking about it 40 50 years later and you're telling me that if i remove affirmative action that now the same black people that it was helping can no longer succeed that means that we haven't fixed any of the issues that the affirmative action was supposed to address in the first place. Does, yeah, does that make, make, yeah. make sense? Because it sounds like the whole idea was to give them like a level playing field, but then, you know, you would think that the, the field will be pretty level by now. It's not even that. It's that, and it's that, that you're just putting a bandaid on the issue. So I was looking at some statistics and we were, we were talking about the Harvard. I think that's the one that like really, like was really under scrutinization because the Harvard one, because the racial disparities for Harvard admissions are insane. So we're saying that they're saying that a student, a black student, African-American student in the 50th percentile has a more, has a stronger chance of getting into Harvard than a white student in the 100th percentile and a black student in the 40th, sorry, African-American, an African-American student in the 40th percentile is more likely to get into Harvard than an Asian student in the 100th percentile. All, wow. this, is, this is all also fine. This is all also fine. But what is Harvard doing when those kids get into Harvard to make sure that children that aren't, young adults that aren't performing at, at the level of their peers, to make sure that they get through Harvard and, they're and then they're still on, and they graduate on the same playing field as their peers in terms of knowledge and, and opportunity. They're not because the graduation rates don't reflect that. So these, hmm. pro, these affirmative action programs aren't helping black kids. They're helping them get into the school just so the school can say, we're more diverse. You know, we're, we're here, we, we, we promote pulling in uh, African Americans or other um, minorities and disadvantaged young adults into our, um, into our schools. But what happens with them once they enter into our halls of <laughs> of education is totally up to them so good luck well we i can actually i can actually relate to that on a personal <laughs> level as funny as that I'll, no i'll tell you why because back when i was going to school uh when i was in fifth grade and i was going to a very regular russian school because basically in russia you have an, a simple way to explain you have regular schools and then you have gymnasiums which are basically regular schools but with a little bit more complex program and so I was doing really well in school I was 10 I was the top student and then my mom got very ambitious so she wanted me to go to a different school to a gymnasium and uh, I did it wasn't exactly a test it was like an interview where they tried to assess my skills and then the the teacher who assessed my skills kind of gently very gently told my mom that I was 
you know, not stupid. I was smart. Everything was good, but probably wasn't a good idea because there was a difference in the in the program, and probably it would be a huge struggle for me to catch up with that. But my mom didn't listen, and guess what? It ended up being a huge struggle for me. Exactly, and and that's my point is that every minority, every child minority or not should be afforded the same opportunities from the beginning and they're just not and that is i i feel like and i'm not speaking that i'm not saying like you're all missing the big picture for me that's the big picture it's that the the fact that people are so polarized by the repeal of of affirmative action and there's a side that says that we we still really need this is that's the side that's admitting that these problems are not fixed and we're still not addressing them and the other side is saying like we don't need this anymore is 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 okay with just putting these kids to the wayside again so the 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 issues that the affirmative action was was supposed to alleviate haven't been addressed at all what what can we what can be done for minority communities or communities that are in this disadvantaged group or that are performing in the 50th percentile or you know what let's make those let's make sure that our communities and all of our kids for the most of our kids will never have all that's utopian but most of our kids have the same opportunities educationally and within their communities but that's that's a pipe dream because we have to give money to ukraine so that's a really good segue (laughs) (laughs) but but that's that's what i'm saying it just i feel like that it brings light to an even bigger problem that we still aren't addressing and i mean the pro like i i I don't understand like people uh, i see both sides and i see people that are saying oh people benefited from from affirmative action and it was a blessing and i'm sure that it was but i see the other side to where it's like is is this not just putting a band-aid on something that are are we going to hold on to affirmative action for forever like when when does the solution like when does this does the solution come into fruition because i've seen no I can't see any sort of programs enacted by the United States government that alleviates those issues that are keeping a minority African American, uh, uh, Hispanic, Latino, and uh, some Asian communities uh, behind their peer group. What are what are the issues that are that why why is that happening? Why are we why are we trying to uh, fix the issue 18 years from the beginning of, of the issue and we could have addressed it at the beginning and this wouldn't even need to be a thing and also what's with the obsession with going to harvard anyway i went to, I've been to three different schools none of them are are prestigious they're just state schools and i thoroughly enjoyed my time and i and i learned a great deal i just i also don't understand the like the brand naming of schools and why that's still really a thing anymore like leave harvard to like the politicians kids who really like who wants to go to harvard like i don't i've never had the desire it's just a very strange thing but yes can't do that money got to go to ukraine so we can um watch more wagner action so let's go into wagner i don't know what happened so i'll preface it by that i was very much not paying attention so i'm probably going to be the one that asks some very dumb questions while the other two give us the rundown Perfect. Perfect. Well, remember when we were talking last week, I can tell you this. I actually, I will proudly say that I knew right away that it was not a serious rebellion or a coup. 
And how I knew this was because I am a seasoned Russian, so I know it is not a real coup unless there is a swan lake involved. No so. swan lake. No swan lake. Yes, because like I woke up, I looked on Telegram, I saw everyone freaking out. And then I, I was like, okay, I need to check. Is there Swan Lake on? And there was none. And I was like, it's it's no big deal. It is not real. It is not happening. It is nothing to worry about. So I went and got some coffee. <laughs> on a serious note, though. <laughs> um, yeah, the, that, that was very interesting. There was some, obviously, initial freaking out because even though in Russia it's never a dull moment we're we don't have a thing like that every week maybe every other week maybe like once three months but definitely not every week so people were a little bit you know people had questions people were curious people were maybe a little bit confused at first but um I I was talking to one of my friends who said a very interesting thing that the more he learns about Russians, the less he understands us because he's like, how, how are you people here not freaking out <laughs> over all of this? And I'm like, I don't know. We're just, we're, we're just a very relaxed society. Russians are not panicky people overall. So well, that was that's funny because that was I was at work when the January sixth thing was happening, and it was we had TVs and they had it on and people were like freaking out and I was like oh, like like I just just like okay like this is this is interesting, but everyone that I spoke to in Russia was also very much just confused and didn't really have a was just like what's 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 well, this of of course and especially because. Back, back in the day it was a little bit easier because you just set a home and you watch Swan Lake the whole day and then you know eventually you got a new government these days you go on telegram and you're bombarded with all kinds of news with all kinds of narratives and obviously we like we said several times that we were probably one of the channels who posted maybe with a little bit of a delay maybe even a little bit less than other channels because we really tried to verify everything and I was scared to yeah. post I was like I'm gonna post something and in 10 minutes it's gonna be the complete opposite of what I exactly exactly and so more than anything I feel like people here they knew that things were under control uh, they felt confident obviously you know bef before uh our president addressed us, everyone was kind of nervous. Then when it was confirmed that he was aware of what was going on, things were going to work out. I feel like everyone kind of calmed down because let's face it, everyone understood that that is not how you take over Moscow. Okay. Now with that amount of people, um, not like that. So yeah, in terms of the actual technique of a coup d'etat, it didn't make sense in its execution because Rostov is not a decision-making center, 
and Prigozhin never, ever secured any decision makers, and he didn't have enough forces. There were, what, maybe four to 5,000 at most Wagner mercenaries who actually joined him. There's a dispute as to how large the Wagner group is. Is it 10,000, 15,000, 20,000? But whatever the case, a very good number of his own men didn't obey their orders to march and stayed in their barracks. And then it doesn't make any sense if you're trying to overthrow the government to immediately go to Rostov and then drive to Rostov from Rostov to Moscow to try and uh, take Moscow when the entire uh, when there's an entire Rosgvardia division to say nothing of the police FSB um, and also parts of the Kentomirovskaya and Tamanskaya guard divisions of the regular army that are there at all times so no, this plan did not make any sense from any point of view as something that was going to succeed. Um, what I was surprised by, and clearly that mo clearly most Western commentators were less surprised by and more crestfallen by, was that although it appears, that, well, actually it's almost certain given what it, that it was reported in Commerçant and other reputable mainstream sources, and President Putin himself announced that pilots had been killed, so it's confirmed that there was violence that Wagner did actually kill serving members of the Russian armed forces, but that relatively speaking, given what could have happened, it was relatively non-violent, and mostly what the authorities did was that they used the distance between Rostov and Moscow to allow Prigozhin and his men to think again about just what it was that they were doing and what they should do. And it also then was reflected in the fact that Lukashenko was used as an intermediary in negotiations between Prigozhin and the Russian authorities. It is said that Lukashenko suddenly saved Putin's bacon, but I don't think Lukashenko would have been able otherwise to get into contact with Prigozhin had the Russian government and therefore the man following these events very closely, President Vladimir Putin, not wanted him to get in contact with Prigozhin. As I think a friend of ours said, Putin was not going to stoop so low as to talk to mutineers, certainly not someone like Prigozhin, and he wasn't going to make the people that he was demanding be removed, General Valery Gerasimov and Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu, talk to a mutineer either. That was far, far beneath them. And so Lukashenko, who had been saved by Putin in 2020, was happy, being the sort of man who doesn't like owing anybody any favors, to do President Putin a solid in return, to act as the intermediary in this case and take the problem off of his hands. Having said that, still, it is at the very least confirmed that a dozen pilots died two on board a Kamov 52 helicopter gunship, and five pilots and five electronic warfare specialists on board the Ilyushin 22, which is actually a modified Ilyushin 18, complicated, and that there was another electronic warfare Mi-8 helicopter, which was brought down by Wagner. Now, some people online are chimping out about this and saying that this is absolutely uh, proof of something, but I would actually say that there is still a lot that we don't know about this, and this also tends to be the case with coup d'etats. 
because a coup d'etat is by definition a conspiracy, one that isn't very openly talked about. So was were Prigozhin and Wagner aiming to take down unarmed, undefended targets and sucker punch them just to kill um, helicopter pilots because the Ukrainians aren't haven't been able to take down any helicopters in the Zaporozhye offensive, and they're causing the Ukrainian army so much misery? Possibly. I mean, after all, there are allegations in the Western press that Prigozhin was a traitor, and to Russia that is, and has been in talks with Ukrainian intelligence and Western intelligence. And there is also the possibility that mercenaries, especially many who are criminals or just the fact that they're mercenaries are going to be mercenaries and do things like sucker punch people, take their lunch money, take their supplies while screaming and demanding as Prigozhin did for more and more and more because they're mercenaries, they're greedy, and they're faithless. Or there is also the possibility that as these guys were driving north to Moscow, they were realizing what they were doing, and this being a coup from the middle to try and establish themselves, they were trying to show that they were willing to use force, and that therefore resistance to their coup attempt was futile and dangerous. Coups from the middle, i.e. from a tactical unit level, so from like a regiment about which is about the size of this coup, or on downward, you know, at that sort of level, tend to be a lot more violent than coups from the top. That is to say, coups initiated by top generals who command uh, armies or military districts, or like the chief of staff, if a chief of staff in some country were to initiate a coup d'etat. But that wasn't the case here either. But this whole thing didn't make any sense, and on any number of levels. Uh, it's an it looks very likely as though what is happening is that Prigozhin, because he was about to lose the Wagner group effectively, because Shoigu was demanding from a position of strength with the Russian army clearly showing, the regular Russian army showing that it was trained very well, equipped very well, with more than enough ammunition, I would add, to be able to defeat top-line NATO-trained and NATO-equipped Ukrainian units had no need of Prigozhin's Trump-like declarations that only he could fix it, and so that therefore all armed groups that were partaking in combat operations needed to immediately subordinate themselves to the regular command structure completely and unquestioningly. Prigozhin didn't want to lose his business, one that had given him quite a high profile and that he was hoping clearly to parlay into political power and that perhaps he used to illicitly enrich himself, and so he threw an oligarch temper tantrum, as oligarchs tend to do, including in Russia. One need only remember, after all, that Boris Berezovsky and Vladimir Gusinsky openly challenged President Putin in 2000 and were struck down. Mikhail Khodorkovsky challenged uh, President Putin in 2002 and 2003 and was also struck down because all of these men, like Prigozhin, are very, very questionable uh, figures and had done some really bad stuff that was able to be used against them. But here is something where it doesn't all add up. This would be an incredible betrayal, especially since it's not just in wartime, but also given who Prigozhin was. He didn't just manage the Wagner group. 
he was in charge of the Concord Group, which, among other things, has cooked many school meals all across the Russian Federation, and also is the one responsible, widely acknowledged, for improving the quality of mess rations and food field rations for the Russian armed forces. All those uh, nice green ration bags that you see in the Russian armed forces are a product of the Concord Group, which is Prigozhin. So this is an incredible betrayal, but also Prigozhin does to a very large extent owe much of his business and even his fortune directly to the Russian armed forces. Did he really think that he could get away with it, that he would have support, that he would be able to effectively topple President Putin and place himself as the most powerful man in Russia, while also saying that things which we know to be a fact, such as the fact that Donetsk is being shelled, that Zelensky was not ever going to negotiate in good faith, but oh no, Donetsk is not being shelled and Zelensky would be negotiating in good faith. Did he really think that this would win him support? This is yeah. the, the logic of this is why some people are saying there must be something more to this. That was the thing that gave me pause. The comments about Donetsk, I was like, that just doesn't. And the comments about Zelensky, I was like, that just doesn't add it, up. Exactly. It was crazy because it, let's let's be fair here. He's been going on his tantrums for a while now. And some of those things, I can see how the general Russian public might just say, you know, okay, it might be true, might not be true. But then when he started saying things like that, people were like, oh, because the, this is obviously not true. And so... A lot of people were confused. Saying something like that was kind of a signal to Russian people to be like, guys, this isn't, this isn't real. Like, I'm going to say something so crazy that you guys are going to know that this isn't. Could be. I mean, that's that's actually part of the reason why people were so con so confused because before, when he was saying all of the stuff that he was saying, uh, people were like, "Okay, we we don't know. Maybe, maybe he's telling the truth." Because um, let me tell you this: uh, obviously, most people don't know how things are exactly because they're not present there, you know, in Ukraine. Uh, but they they're able to to kind of you know judge and, and see okay we have this man who's in charge of these people who are fighting for our country maybe what he's saying has some merit okay um but then i also have to say that for the most part and that's just how russians are russians are very much we we have this saying that you basically don't take the you know the trash out of your house meaning that whatever problem you have uh, in your house in your family you you need to sort it out in your house you don't need to air your dirty laundry and so a lot of people were having problem with that then that if there are legitimate problems you need to discuss them in private you don't need to give our enemies more ammunition let's put it this way more weapons to use against us um, so yeah in that sense people were not okay with it and I also hear a lot of these opinions that people are confused they say okay but how does it work that people still support Wagner and uh, if, if they don't like Prigozhin? Well, for the Russian people, those are, you know, the three separate things. There is the Ministry of Defense. Uh, there's 
Prigozhin and then there is Wagner. <laughs> so they're, they're not the same. And so people might still support and definitely appreciate the guys who fought for, for the country, but it doesn't mean that they're okay with whatever their leader is doing, their manager is doing. Okay, and the final element here, which I think actually will be a good segue into what we're going to discuss next is this, which is that he's being kicked out uh, and his men are being kicked out of Russia into Belarus. Lukashenko is not the kind of man who just lets whoever run around in his country beyond control. So either um, effectively Prigozhin and whoever is following them to Belarus will be effectively under arrest until they are sent on wherever or maybe even just imprisoned. Who knows what's going on? And another element to this is that it appears as though NATO countries are worried by the fact that Wagner is coming to Belarus, which is strange because for a brief moment, as you saw in the Wall Street Journal, the United States suspended sanctions against Wagner because suddenly, wait, they're on our side? And now suddenly they're worried they might pose a threat to Poland and Lithuania. Why? If they're, if Wagner has turned traitor to Russia, things need to take time, and I know this sounds like a cop-out to shake out in a coup d'etat attempt, but there's a lot we don't know, and I'll cite a past experience of mine. I had to cover the 2016 coup d'etat attempt against Erdogan, and I got it absolutely wrong who was staging the coup. I called it right that the coup would fail, and I set out why it would fail. For many of the reasons that we actually just discussed about the logic of coup d'etats and how they have to succeed and how they have to be done, I thought it was secular Kamalists carrying out the coup against Erdogan, when in fact it was these rather weird Islamic cultists, you know, the Gulenists. I completely missed that. And that actually a lot of other things happened behind the scenes in the uh, security establishment of Turkey, which didn't necessarily mean that there was a further Islamization of the security apparatus, but rather the Kamalists ended up getting back some power, and Erdogan even later forgave some of the Kamalist officers who in a previous instance had been plotting against him in recognition that in fact that Kamalist officers had mostly rallied to his side. So Lots of things take times in a coup d'etat to sh shake out, and because it's a conspiracy, by definition, some of these things only become known weeks or months later. It's only been a week. It's still early. But NATO being worried. Who wants to talk about whatever it is that Sweden thinks it's doing? Okay, let's, let's, can anybody answer why Scandinavians can't stop burning the Koran? Like, what? This is like the, what is this, the third or fourth time that we've had to watch some Scandinavian state defend its I don't right. know. They have gas and oil, no? <laughs> Whatever they, I don't I know, don't, I have all kinds of theories. I'm not a particularly religious person, but I have never felt the urge to burn someone else's religious text, so I don't understand this sort of mentality to, like, go out of my way to be like, I'm going to deliberately disrespect your religion for attention i've just never i don't i don't that i just don't understand that sort of mentality and i and i really love that um 
Orban was, I mean, this he might have other motives for speaking out against it, but I loved it, the way that he reasoned why uh, this was such an issue. Um, and that's because uh, obviously or Orban's not uh, Muslim. Um, I, I, I remember like a subscriber responded to me like, why would he even care? He's not Muslim. But this is why his the reasoning for caring is is the important part is that when he said, you know, when you're questioned about it and and they're like, why are you burning the Quran or could you not do that? They're like, this is free speech. And all you're doing is in, in creating protected free speech. And then when we tell you that we're offended by it and that it bothers us and that it'll have consequences, you talk down on us. Like we're not intellectually evolved to not be offended by these things, right? Because that's how they, that's how they talk. It's free speech. It's free speech. You're offended by a little book right you're not enlightened you're not enlightened you're still still yeah it's it's actually very similar to to how some let's call them liberals for simplicity because (laughs) i feel like you know everyone at this point knows what a russian lib (laughs) largely is that's how a lot of uh people here talk because we we actually have laws that protect religious feelings um of all the confessions that we have here in Russia and that we've had instances for example when people would take let's call them inappropriate pictures and in front of churches and would get called out on that and they they actually say the same thing they say well if if it's your faith if your faith is so strong how can it be offended by something like that but then people usually respond with but why why do you even feel the need to offend and I'm like you I I don't understand that need because for me even if if it's something that I don't particularly understand I don't feel the need to offend <laughs> but and, and then to like go out of your way to be like hey government i want to burn this thing can you make sure that nobody attacks me while i'm burning this thing yeah no, exactly. provocative this is just free speech this isn't provocative at all i only need these police here for decoration this isn't provocative it's just free speech why are you offended but also if you want to burn it like if that's your stance like be brave about it just don't ask don't ask anyone to protect you just be just you know be decisive about it and i think that it also it serves other purposes i think that this sort of argument really shows the dichotomy or the division between why would how can all of these states right in europe with all of these enormously tremendously different value systems enter into good faith business and military relationships through things like the EU, right? Or NATO. How do you, you know what I mean? Like it, it, we're, we're looking at we're two states that are in the EU that are in NATO um, or well, Sweden isn't, but we're looking at two areas that are for the most part in the EU in NATO. And now showing how vastly different these two states are. And Turkey too, like Turkey is completely like this. This is a humongous differential between North and West uh, Europe and with East and South. And I think that this is, is another way of showing that huge schism between the two. Definitely, definitely. And um, then um, we, t- we mentioned something else about the, the thing um, because people will say, <laughs> there's my, here, I'll do my, my Alex Jones moment here right now for you guys so I said to JM remember JM what did I say because everybody came back to me when I was like man you don't have to like burn somebody else's religious sex that's messed up 
of course, everybody's response is, he was Iraqi. <laughs> so I'm like, and then I quickly turned to JM and I'm like, what if he did it on purpose? Because he doesn't want Sweden in NATO. <laughs> oh, oh, now we're getting to the interesting part. <laughs> I didn't look at it like that. Yeah, this is the meat and potatoes. What if he was smart enough to be like, you know what? This is really going to piss off Turkey at least Turkey. And he just got lucky because it pissed off Hungary as well. And he's like, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's like 3D chess. (laughs) Impressive stuff. That's Putin's like 8D underwater chess school. And and what if Putin actually paid him to do that? That's, we've we've figured it out. We can move on now. We've already, we've solved the crime. Oh, and see, and so he basically weaponized the Quran burning Right, and he, but he talked to Orban beforehand, right? He's like, I'm going to- And, he, and he weaponized yes. Orban, obviously. Yeah, and he's like, this is going to give you an excuse to postpone your vote and to maybe start the process to get out of NATO. And Hungary's like, cool, man. All right, thanks. <laughs> and then that's it. Perfect, perfect. That's wonderful. Right. We, we, we've done <laughs> so much work in our first episode. case closed this you know there will be no better theory i feel like (laughs) and on that note congrats to hafez al-assad graduated from moscow state with a master's degree in mathematics and a thesis on numbers theory just the phrase numbers theory intimidates me i don't know i don't know what numbers i i know nothing about math so i actually feel i don't i don't know how i'm feeling even i don't do math yeah we'll talk more about it on another episode but i know that you guys and most of the listeners know about my deep deep love for the assads but um i think it's nice to note that asma went with the delegation and participated in the graduation ceremony um just to look beautiful and radiant as always I can't. It just makes me so sick. This woman just doesn't, she doesn't age. They're like, what are they like 60 now? She looks like she's like 30, 35. JM is an Assad fan, an Assad family fan. Yeah, mostly because they're not dysfunctional like the Husseins were or other um, uh, Arab political dynasties. Uh, It you would never look at the Assads and think, oh, God, there goes Uday and Hussein. You're like, no, actually, there goes a family where this father, and this was definitely the case with Khafez al-Assad's namesake. His grandfather was uh, was like, don't think that just because I'm the president of the country that you get to skate through like everybody else. You'd better get those grades, mister, or you're stupid, <laughs> or you're not getting anything from the family inheritance. Do you understand? If you want to yeah. continue living this life of ease, you will get good grades. You will make me proud, or I will do what has made everybody in the Arab world hate me and roll my eyes and say, <laughs> God, you are stupid. <laughs> And then, thankfully, it, all of that education paid off, and he wound up getting to be the president of Syria in the end. And God bless, God bless Bashar, Bashar Assad. <laughs> Bashar.